Before we even get into our passage this morning, I think I need to pause for a minute and just ask you to consider a, a personal question. You ever used J.B. Weld? If you haven't, I want you to buy some. I want you to go straight home and break something so that you can use this miracle product. This stuff will change your life. I years ago fixed our ice cream freezer with this stuff. Still works, man. If you happen to break off a tooth, this will come in super handy. That is a joke. Um, I don't think our our insurance policy will handle the liability if I don't add this disclaimer. I was joking about the tooth thing, okay? But here's the way J.B. Weld works. You take some of this uh, black goo, and then you take some of this white glue, goo, and you, and, you, and you mix it together. And then the now gray goo you can apply to whatever, and that will set up like granite. It's awesome. Now, what would happen if I wanted to save some money? Something I often want to do, by the way. But in the name of my cheapness, what if I decided I, I want to save some money? I only want to use out of one tube of the JB Weld because it'll go farther. It'll last longer. How would that work out for me? It won't work. Right? That my tooth would fall right back out of my head. It doesn't work. It, the two tubes have to be used together. Well, this morning's passage, 1 Samuel chapter 29, is, is kind of like one tube of J.B. Weld. We have to, it has to be taken together with something we studied two weeks ago chapter 27 and the first two verses of chapter 28, or we won't understand it correctly. So before we get into 1 Samuel chapter 29, I got to squeeze a little bit out of the tube of 1 Samuel 27, or we won't understand today's passage. So bear with me. I'll make this quick, but here's what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 27. David, even prior to 1 Samuel chapter 27, had been being hunted constantly by the king of Israel, a guy named Saul. And David, by the time we got to chapter 27, was so tired of being pursued, murderously hunted, day and night, the last second getaways. The, he just was so fatigued that he, he made some mistakes. David said to himself, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to be, literally he said, swept away by Saul. If I don't run away from my homeland of Judah, Saul's going to catch me and kill me. Now that's wrong. Because God had promised David he was going to be king of Israel. But David in his fatigue, I don't blame him for being this fatigued for sure, but he... He did something that was, that's a long family history in Israel. He asked a foreign nation 
to provide protection for him, even though God had promised to protect him. He went to the Philistine city of Gath, and he asked the Philistines to protect him and his men, to grant them asylum. And they did that. There's, there's a long, uh, in the history of the world, a really old uh, dictum that is the, the, the enemy, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Still happens in the world today. The, the king of the city of Gath, a guy named Achish, decided, well, if David is an enemy of Saul, king of Israel, then I'm okay helping him. He grants David and his men asylum. He gave them a city to live in. And Saul gave up the pursuit of David. And David and his men breathed this huge sigh of relief. They could live there with their families in in peace. They got a break. They got rest. But David didn't stay idle very long. During that time, he lived there a year and four months. And David took on the lifestyle sort of of a pirate. What David and his men started doing, warriors that they were, they would scout and find isolated groups or bands of these other people groups that were longtime enemies of Israel. Um, And David was attacking them, like maybe he'd find some Amalekites. His band would go attack them, steal all of their livestock and valuable stuff, and then they they would kill and murder all the people. Leave no survivors. Then David, he would go back to Gath to Achish, the guy that was letting him live there, and he would bring him a percentage of the loot, of the stuff, kind of his tribute or rent. He was paying him off for allowing them to live there in safety. And Achish, king of Gath, would always ask David, Oh man, where'd you get all this stuff? David would tell the same lie every time. He would say, I've been attacking Israel. I've been attacking Israelites and stealing all this stuff from them. Because he wanted to convince Achish, king of Gath, that he was a full-fledged defector. He was an enemy of Israel. And that's why David left no survivors. So no one could rat him out. So no one could ever discover his lie that he wasn't attacking Israelites. He was attacking these other people that could be enemies of, uh, of the Philistines. David could have been making the Philistines more enemies. And that deception seemed to work. I mean, it worked till it didn't. In the first two verses of chapter 28, Achish king of Gath came to David and informed David that David and his men... Um, had just been drafted into the Philistine army. And you guys are going to be put in line as the Philistines. You're going to come fight with us while we go attack Israel. And David would never fight against Israel. How do you go? How could he go attack Israel and then expect to be king of, you know, Israel? So David was very suddenly, where we pick up this morning, he is in a really difficult jam. He can't go along and go fight against Israel. But he also can't let the Philistines know he's been deceiving them. He's been lying to them for 16 months. He's been creating, like if the Amalekites and those other people groups that David's been attacking 
blame the Philistines. If David's a Philistine now, David's just started another international problem for the Philistines. He can't out himself. So what's he going to do? That's, that's the jam David's in. As we're ready to pick up today, but before we do, let me ask you to consider this. Answer this question. What does David deserve at this point from God? Yes, God has said David's going to be king, but David just ran away from Judah. By the way, if you look back in this early, earlier in this book, the last time David ran out of Judah to get safety for his family, God sent a prophet to David and told him, don't stay here, go back home. Straight from God. David, what got David in the jam he's in? David's own what? His own sin. David has got himself in this jam. David, going where he shouldn't have gone, uh, stealing, marauding, and killing, then lying about it so that he can continue stealing, marauding, and killing in relative safety. That's what he's been doing. So what does David deserve? David's kind of similar to Saul last week. He was in a jam. He starts asking God, please tell me what I can do. David doesn't even ask. If you were God, and we're all glad that you're not. If you were God, what would you do with David? Oh, you're in a tough spot now, are you? Huh. Well, you didn't seem to need my help getting into it. What does David deserve? Let's see what he's going to get. Let's read our passages. We're going to read the whole chapter, but it's not very long, relatively speaking. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 29. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, or Aphek where the Israelites were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. Then the commanders, or the lords of the Philistines, said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or, or rather these years, and I found no fault in him? from the day he deserted to me until this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make him go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. And do not let him go down into the battle with us, or in the battle he may become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his lord, King Saul? Would it not be with the heads of our men? Verse 5, is this not David of whom they sing in the dances saying Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, as Yahweh lives, you have been upright. And you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army are pleasing in my sight. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me until this day. Nevertheless, you're not pleasing in the sight of the lords of the Philistines. 
Now, therefore, return. Go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? But Achish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight, like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he can't go up with us into battle. Now then arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you. As soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, get out of here, depart. So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines and the, as the Philistines went up to fight at Jezreel. There's our, our passage. Um, in the first two verses of this passage, we see something of a troop review. Uh, the whole Philistine army is, is lined up. They're prepared to like invade, to attack Israel. And the, the Philistines, they don't have like one king. They had a, a group of five men called the lords of the Philistines or the, or the commanders of the Philistines. And so that council, ruling council, is reviewing the troops. And David and his men, because they're in the rear, they, they kind of get reviewed last. And so in verse 3, when the lords of the Philistines get to the, the rear of the army, they notice David and his men. Uh, in the Hebrew, they, they say three words. They say, what these Hebrews? And that can be taken a couple of ways. But they might say, uh, what are these Israelites doing here? Hebrew is another, Hebrews is another name for Israelites. Usually it's kind of derogatory when a non-Israelite uh, says it. So maybe they're asking just, wait, are these Hebrews? Or maybe they're saying to Achish, what are these Hebrews doing in our army? It's not hard to figure out why they are surprised. I think maybe, by the way, this passage is hilarious to me. There's a lot of comedy in this one. Um, maybe we're seeing why Achish was David's target and why he, David found it so easy to deceive Achish. Maybe he's not the brightest light in the Philistine harbor. He's, maybe he's not on the Philistine uh, National Honor Society, if you catch my drift. The, the lords of the Philistines basically say to him, so you're going to employ Israelite soldiers while we go fight against, you know, Israel. Any thoughts on what could possibly go wrong there, Achish? Uh, but Achish tries to reassure them. No, 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 I know David. Oh man, he's, these, these guys are great. These guys are great fighters. And uh, the other guys probably say, yeah, we know, but that's, that's the problem. That's not us. You say that like it's a good thing. Uh, this would be like, so a few weeks ago as our, as our teams prepared to go to state track, this would be like, and I don't think he's here, but I'm going to say it anyway. This would be like, let's say Coach Hawkswell assigned assistant coach Sam McNair with arranging all the meals for this three days the teams were going to be gone. So they get ready, and Hawk, Coach Hawksville's doing his review of the troops before they head off, and he says, okay, Sam, so what are the, what's the meal plan? He goes, stroke of luck, man. 
the Lincoln Lutheran student body has volunteered to cook all the meals for our kids. Right? And they, they sent along these little tiny squares of chocolate for dessert. And these pills, they swear, they're energy pills. It just said we should just take one of these. That's our, what could possibly go wrong, right? That would ne- that's what this is. That would never happen. So the lords of the Philistines, they get angry. And they basically say, you got to get these guys out of here. <laughs> There's no way we're going into battle against Israel with a sleeper cell of Israelite killers already on our flank in the rear of our army. You got to get this guy out of here. So Achish does what he hates to do. He comes to David and he tells him, I hate it, buddy, but I got to let you go. You know, look, you've been awesome. I know uh, this translation says honest. Its word means, your Bible might say upright or uh, honorable, reliable. First rate. He says, I've been glad to have you. And the whole that, if, if your Bible says going out and coming in, what he says here is, it would be an honor to fight right alongside you. I sure would like to fight alongside of you. But the bosses, they don't approve. So what are you going to do? You got to go. There's, there's some real irony and, again, kind of comedy in, in what Achish says here. First, you know, he swears by David's God that David has been honest, reliable, honorable. Here's what's ironic about that. First, I wonder if David didn't feel a little pinch in his heart there as he hears somebody that he's been deceiving tell him how honest and honorable and reliable and swearing by the name of Israel's God, Yahweh. But he says, you know, David has been throughout the course of this book an honest, honorable, reliable man, except to the guy who calls him an honest, reliable, honorable man. Then Achish says, uh, I have found no fault with you the whole time you've been here. That's 100% true. It's just not true in the way Achish means it. It's not that there is no fault in David. It's just that Achish hasn't found it. And so he says, hey, you got to leave. You got to leave quietly. Don't cause any trouble. Just get out of here. That's how David's going to get out of this jam. He gets kicked out of it. But David's response can be taken one of two ways. David responds as if he's angry to being kicked out of the Philistine army and thus kicked out of this jam he put himself in. He might be faking it. He might be lying. Right? David might hear Achish say, hey, you have got to get your guys and get out of here. You can't go fight against Israel. And David might be saying, what? Oh, that makes me so angry. Right? I can't believe this. Guys, can you believe we can't go fight? Right? He might just be lying. But I don't think he is. I think he, at this point, 
wants to enter the fight. I think the lords of the Philistines are right in what David plans to do. I think when David is, appears to be angry that he can't go fight, it's because David's angry that he can't go fight. Notice what he says here. Uh, what have I done that I shouldn't go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Notice he doesn't identify which king he's talking about. He could be talking about Saul. I want to go fight against the enemies of my Lord the King, all right. But my Lord the King is Saul, not you. Also, if we go back in the, chapter, the beginning of chapter 28, when David first found out he was drafted into the Philistine army, look at what he said. When Achish first told him, you're going to be put in line to go into this battle against Israel. David's response was, very well, we'll show you what we can do. Does that sound vague? Could that be taken more than one way? I think so. But whether or not David was actually disappointed to be kicked out of the Philistine army, or whether he is, really is disappointed because... He wants to go in and help Israel win. We can't be sure, but here's what we can know. They got kicked out. David was in this terrible jam of his own making, and the Philistines kicked him out. He and his men have to go back toward the safety of where they were staying to their families. He's saved out of this jam, only he's way wealthier, way safer, and way better rested than he's been in years. And that's our passage. What's it teach us? Well, first, this is another one of those passages from the Bible that teaches us that God very often works in ways that we cannot detect what God is doing, what God is planning, that He's even alive and awake up there. Right? There's this yearning among Christians to constantly pursue and see the miraculous. And those stories are in the Bible. But there's lots of stories in the Bible where God is at work and nobody can tell what He's doing. That sounds, that sounds like real life. God's not mentioned in this passage except by Achish, sort of ironically. We're never told what God is thinking. So, does that mean God's not at work in this passage? Of course not. God's always at work. God doesn't leave anything up to chance. And even if he did, he certainly wouldn't live, lead, leave the life of David up to chance. God is never in heaven hoping for the best. He's never wondering how this is going to work out. God is always at work, even when we can't tell. This passage is not about how David, just out of a stroke of dumb luck, got out of this jam of his own making. But there's more. God saves David in ways 
David couldn't possibly understand, and we wouldn't understand if I wouldn't have read ahead. Okay. If David did want to enter this battle as sort of a double agent, like I believe, if he did want to go in the rear of the Philistine army and help Israel win, then God is saving David from something he can't possibly imagine. Uh, spoiler alert, okay, plug your ears if you don't want to know how this uh, ends, but Saul's not going to survive this coming battle. King Saul's about to die. Now, David's had the chance to kill King Saul on two occasions in this story so far, hasn't he? And he refused to do it. Why? Well, last time he could have killed Saul and didn't. David said this, as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike Saul down. If God wants Saul to live to a ripe old age, that's what's going to happen. If God wants Saul to just keel over today, that's going to happen. Check this one out. Or maybe God wants Saul to go down into battle and be swept away, be killed in battle. I don't know what it's going to be. Here's what I do know. I am not going to get in the business of fighting against God's plan for the end of Saul's life. Isn't that what he says? So in today's passage, if David, he gets himself in that jam through his own sin, then he's got this brilliant idea, well, I guess if I'm in this jam anyway, I'm going to do as much damage to the Philistines, I'm going to help Israel win this battle. But if God lets David go into that battle and fight on Israel's behalf, David will actually be fighting against God because God has decided to work through Israel's defeat. Again, I've read ahead. I know how this ends. God wants Israel to lose. You know why? Because God wants Saul to go down into battle and die so that God can get rid of the king Israel asked for but didn't need and give Israel the king who would pursue God's own heart if he would just get back to doing it. You never want to be in the business of fighting against God. David's about to do that and has no idea. And so God saves David, not just from the jam of his own making, but then his plan to get himself out of the jam of his own making. God is always at work. Through our victories, through our defeats, in our health, in our sickness, for richer, for poorer, He's always at work. He's at work when he seems like he's loud and obvious and we can tell it's him. He's at work when we couldn't possibly tell or understand what he could, what he could be thinking at all. Which is why the best thing we can always do is just hang on to him and walk with him and not get outside of what he says is best. You know what David loses out on? David gets saved from his jam here. But you know what David loses out on? He loses out on seeing how would God have saved David had he stayed at home? 
We'll never know. Might it have been better than this? I'll bet it would have. It's always what David doesn't understand. Oh, I'm so tired. I've got to get out of here. I'm going to die. If I don't go do what God tells me not to do, I just have to. David didn't need to defect. God was ready to make him king. He just needed to hang on. And he split. Like he could have messed the whole thing up. Which brings us back to the original question I asked you this morning. Well, not have you used J.B. Weld. Not that one. Okay, the second question. What did David deserve right here? And what did David get? And why the difference? I think the reason our author keeps telling us a little bit of story about David, telling us a story about Saul. Going back to telling us a story about David, going back to telling us a story about Saul. We're supposed to see, compare and contrast these two men. And listen, they compare fairly closely. At this point, Last week we saw King we saw King Saul in a jam of his own making. And he starts asking God, please help me know what to do so I can survive this. God says, Nope. I've rejected you as king. Get your papers in order. David doesn't even ask. And make no mistake, it is not the difference in the size of the sins they've sinned. The sins that Saul sinned when he got rejected by God are smaller than the sins David has sinned in this episode. And it ain't even close by anybody's estimation. Not last week's witchcraft. Saul didn't get rejected because of the witchcraft. We go back into chapter 15 where God told Saul, you've been rejected, I'm done with you. Here were his sins. He had church too early. He offered sacrifices God wanted offered, but he didn't wait for the prophet to get there. And then he refused to kill as many people and as many animals as God told him to kill. Those were the sins that got Saul rejected by God. David? Violent theft. Mass murder and deceiving his host nation so that he can keep doing those things. So what does David deserve from God? What does he get? And why the difference? What David gets from God here is protection. And as we just talked about, he gets protected in ways he can't even fathom. He doesn't even know he's being protected from things he's being protected of. Why? Saul gets rejected. Why? There's only one reason. God promised. That's it. God promised David from Bethlehem is going to be the king of Israel. And he promised it unconditionally. David didn't campaign. He didn't ask for the job. And as soon as God promises, promises that unconditionally, David's going to be king. And once God promises that, God's integrity 
to keep his promise is a way bigger deal than David's lack of integrity to try to mess it up. And don't hear me wrong. It's not that David's integrity and lack of integrity is, is unimportant. That's not true. It's important. But David's lack of integrity cannot mess up God's perfect integrity. And doggone it, God promised. As soon as God promised, as soon as that promise was out of his mouth, this young man from Bethlehem is going to be king. He's going to be king. But what if he turns into a mass murderer? He's still going to be king. Because God promised. Now, What does David do to bring that about right here? Does he respond to his sin correctly? Find me where he repented. Find me where he confessed. Find me where he wrote a psalm about this sin. Find me where he sacrificed the sacrifices his sin required. David gets protected for one reason. God promised. Now here's why that's so important for us. When when God's integrity is on the line, God will fulfill what his integrity requires. And that's why it is so important for us to learn what God has promised us. I don't, we don't have time to go through tons and tons of God's promises, so I just pulled out one. Well, there's several of them, but from one place. The beginning of Romans chapter 5, Paul, after Paul has already explained um, the cross of Christ, the sin of man, God says, or Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it is God saying, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Here's what God promised you. In this passage, if, now this applies to you, if you've accepted that what Jesus did at the cross, he did on your behalf. Paul is assuming that much in his audience right now. If you believe that when Jesus went to the cross, he was being punished with the wrath of God that should have been pointed at you, but was pointed at him instead. Therefore, Paul says, we have been justified through faith. Here's what justified means, if I can do this quickly. Picture a high courtroom, a courtroom in heaven. The God of the universe is behind the bench. Justified is a legal term for, it's not exactly our idea of being declared not guilty. Um, Justified means being declared not guilty and, and completely righteous. Being declared perfect. And when somebody in a courtroom gets declared not guilty, they're not declared that they've never messed anything up. That's what justification is. Paul says when we believe through faith in Jesus Christ, 
we are declared legally, the gavel of heaven drops, and God declares, uh, Matthew Keith Maxwell of Imperial, Nebraska, legally speaking, is sinlessly, righteously perfect in the courtroom of heaven. Through faith in Jesus Christ. You know what that gets for, gets for us? We have peace with God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you and God are not enemies. Do you know that? You're not enemies. There's no more enmity between you and God. Why? Because all of the wrath was poured out on his son. Through whom, verse 2, we now have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Why are we headed for heaven someday? Because we deserve it? No, because God promised. And he has given grace, which is just way more than we deserve. This story about David, would you all agree David got way more from God than he deserved? Yes, that's called grace. And it's how God has always operated. Now, pay attention to the tense, the timing of these promises. When do we have justification, peace with God, and grace? When? Someday, when you get yourself good and cleaned up, and you quit screwing up so much, and you grow up for a change? When? Right now. We already have been justified. It's done. We have peace, shalom in our relationship with God. We stand right now. We're wallowing around in this grace. Do we deserve it? No. It wouldn't be called grace if we did. We don't deserve a bit of it. So why do we have it? Because God promised. And once God promises something, His unconditionally, like this, His integrity to keep that promise just flat matters more than your integrity to live up to it. You see, I do need to mention the difference between us and David. We're sort of like David. We're in a jam of our own making. And what we deserve from God is kind of unspeakable. But we get far more. Now, unlike David, we don't have any promise from God that says, hey, I got to get you out of the earthly jams your sin creates. We don't have those promises. That's why our integrity and our obedience still matters because we can make we can make a mess of our lives and we can cause a lot of pain for ourselves and others through our own sin and God has not promised to protect us from the earthly consequences of our sins but he has promised that hell won't be one of the consequences of our sin we are we should be we were in a jam of our own making. But there's a huge difference between what we deserve and what we get if we believe in Christ. And how can we be sure of that? Because God 
promised. And when God promises something, he will deliver because it's his integrity that ensures it. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, um, finally we get to a passage where we can identify with David. (laughs) How often we have gotten ourselves in a jam of our own making. How often, like David, we haven't even asked to come back to you to get out of it. But as we've seen today, you are a gracious and merciful God because, and you will keep your promises. Father, thank you that the jam of our, unmake, of our making has, has sort of been undone at the cross of Christ. Thank you for promising eternal life to those who will merely believe. It's such a fantastic deal. Sometimes we have a hard time believing it because, God, we tend to believe our integrity matters more than yours. Thank you that you keep your promises. Thank you that you promise to save all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have been justified through that faith. We have peace with God and we stand in grace. Not because we deserve it, but because you have promised. And as we gather around uh, this table now, we remember that that did not come cheaply. It's just that the price was paid by you so that it wouldn't be required of us. We love you, Lord. Bless our time at the table in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, The author of the book of Hebrews says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he, Jesus, has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. One more glimpse at a promise. We are promised an eternal inheritance. Why? Because he died as a ransom. But ransom is, here's the price that must be paid to get your loved ones back. We were kidnapped by sin. The ransom was paid. That's what we remember around this table. As the guys come forward, pray with me. Father God, um, as we hand out bread, what we are remembering is what you commanded us to remember, the body of your son handed over to evil men to be executed on earth, but from, from a celestial view to, to feel the wrath of God our sins deserved. God, grace is not cheap. We just don't pay. This gift may be free to us, but it wasn't free to you. So we want to remember what the Lord Jesus did, that we might have way, way more and way better than we would ever deserve. So we remember him as the bread comes around. In Jesus' name, amen.
through Isaiah, God promised that his, his promised servant, his son, would be beaten till he was marred beyond recognition as a man. He promised he'd be a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. That he would be pierced due to our transgressions. He promised he would be pleased to crush his servant. God keeps his promises. Jesus knew his father always keeps his promises. So the night before he was betrayed, even before he asked, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He already did this because he knew my dad keeps his promises. So he took bread, he held it up, he broke. He said, this is my body broken for you. His disciples had to be confused, but Jesus knew my dad keeps his promises. And so we do this in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, when you accepted as the Father's promised will the destruction of your body, uh, the blood that flowed was the ratification of a new covenant where we find forgiveness of sins. We remember your sacrifice and depend on it for the, for the forgiveness it provides. Be with us while we concentrate on the cup that symbolizes your blood. Amen. Were God ever going to fail to keep one of his promises? Don't you think it would be the promises to destroy, to crush his one and only son who had never done anything wrong? He kept, if he would keep that promise, why would he not keep his promise to save you who believe in what he did? You have no more right to doubt that your salvation is real if you believe in him than you had to doubt that he would fail to crush his son once he promised that. God promised that the body of his son nailed to a cross and the blood that flowed from his wounds was enough to pay the price your sins deserved. God promised. If you believe in that, you have peace with God, completely justified. And we do this in remembrance of him. Amen. Thank you, folks, for being here. Love you guys, and we will see you next week.